Hey, well, welcome to The Crossing. So good to see you here today. Next week, we start a brand new series called Messy Grace, and we are walking through one of the greatest chapters in the entire Bible, Romans chapter 8. And it's going to be a great series for us, but next weekend is also Super Bowl Sunday. I don't know if you knew that there's a football game coming up. Maybe you did, maybe you didn't. But next week, we are moving our Sunday night 6 o'clock service to Saturday night. So if you're a diehard football fan and you like to start the celebration at 8 a.m., we have a service for you on Saturday night at 6 o'clock, and we will not have our normal Sunday night at 6 o'clock service. Well, today we're concluding our series we've called You Asked For It. That we ask this, if you could ask God anything, what would you ask him? And we've been counting down the top five questions that you've had. We started off five weeks ago, and your fifth most requested question was what happens to those who never hear about Jesus? What happens to those that are some remote village? And here's what we believe is that God is a fair judge. The Apostle Paul tells us that everyone will have the opportunity to hear about God at some level, but we have a responsibility in that to share the good news with them. Then the second week, our, our fourth most requested question was, is suicide the unforgivable sin? And for a believer in Christ, it is not the unforgivable sin. Then we hit, is are we living in the end times? Maybe. We might be. But for sure, you are in your end times. And so there's some things that God tells us to be ready for in our life. Last week, Lee did a great job hitting our second most requested question, which is, if God is powerful, why does he allow tragedy and suffering? And this is something that we cannot see the full extent on this side of heaven, but what we know is that God is with us. He will never leave you. He will not forsake you. Well, today, today we come to what was hands down your number one question, and it's this. What's the big deal about homosexuality and gay marriage. Now, if this is your first time here, you might be thinking, oh, great. This is one of those churches. I'll bet they harp on this issue all the time, and that's just not accurate. Well, I have taught many times over the years about God's design for sex, this is the first time I've addressed this as a standalone topic for years, and I probably wouldn't be doing it today, but you asked for it. You wanted us to dive into this. And so I'm just going to tell you here at the very beginning, that I am pretty sure that I'm going to disappoint almost everyone in here today. That you will disagree with something that I say. You'll be disappointed that your perspective was not better represented. There's just no way that I could dive into this in 30 minutes and, and do all of the things that, that encompass this topic. And you may be tempted somewhere along the way to get upset, to cross your arms and just check me out. Just check out at some point. Not check me out. Just check out at some point. <laughs> so my ask to you is you stick with me to the end, and I will do my very best to present God's truth as best as I understand it because I think it's our responsibility to speak the truth in love. That this right here is probably the most divisive issue of our time. It is divisive socially, politically, religiously, relationally. And this topic is only easy for you if you don't have any friends or family who are gay, lesbian, bisexual, or transgender. This topic is only easy for you if you've never had a son or a daughter who have told you that they think that they are gay. 
This topic is only easy for you if you have never lived with same-sex attraction and lived with fear of how you would be treated in the church community. As a kid growing up in my little conservative town in Kansas, I really didn't know any lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgendered people. Of course, I really did. I just didn't know it at the time because it wasn't safe for them to come out for fear of being ostracized. I just always assumed that LGBT people were out there somewhere. Then in 1994, I moved to Las Vegas. And I found out that out there was right here. <laughs> that they were right in front of me. They were my friends. They were in our church. And I discovered real people with real needs and real fears. And here's what I know. That there are followers of Jesus wondering how do we respond to this issue. That there are teenagers who are struggling to figure out their sexual identity. There's men and women who find themselves in a wrestling match with God's word on this subject. And there's maybe some of you who are undecided about the crossing, wondering if this could be your church home or not. And so I know the stakes are high. And I know that the weight and the responsibility that I carry today with this issue is really, really high. And before we jump in, let me just address just a couple issues with you. The first is this is that I am convinced that the same Jesus who hung out with and stood up for those who were marginalized is grieved over the mistreatment of LGBT people. I think God is grieved any time a person is mistreated, whether they are black or white, Asian, Latino, rich or poor, young or old, gay or straight. I think it dishonors Jesus who says to us to love your neighbor as yourself, period. There are no qualifiers. There is no prerequisite. There's no asterisk that says, well, unless, of course, they're gay or lesbian. Jesus just says, treat your neighbors, whoever they are, with love. And those so-called Christian groups who have signs that says that God hates fags, I can't help but think that their hatred is darker than anything that they could ever protest because God loves people. God loves people. Here's the second thing is that God is smarter than we are in the complex dynamics of same-sex attraction. Whether you are gay or straight, you can choose your behavior, but you don't get to choose who you're attracted to. It's the age-old question, are you born gay or you, do you become gay? And there's a lot of factors that go into this dynamic that I don't have time to unpack this morning. But the simple answer is we don't completely know. The jury is still out. There is a lot of research on both sides of this, and the research is inconclusive. But I know many gay friends who would choose to turn off the switch if they could because it just makes their life more complicated. And I'm going to tell you that, that this question of why would God do such a thing, well, I, I don't have an answer for that. There may be an answer. I don't have it. Well, I want to frame up our discussion this morning through the lens of 1 Corinthians 13. This is what the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13. It's the love chapter of the Bible. He says this. He says, and now these three things remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. And I want to frame up our whole discussion today through that lens, through faith, hope, and love. And the first part of this, it's a call to faith. As followers of Jesus, our truth source 
is not found in surveys or public opinion polls, that our true source is found in God's Word. It's the Bible. That if the Bible is the absolute Word of God, which here at the Crossing we believe it is, then you have to take this as a whole. You can't keep the verses that you like and get rid of the verses that you don't like. We don't conform the teachings of this book to our lifestyle. We conform our lifestyle to the teachings of this book. So what does the Bible say about homosexuality and gay marriage? Well, I want to turn to a passage in in Matthew chapter 19, where Jesus addresses the subject of marriage. There is actually some religious leaders who came to Jesus, and they asked him about divorce, and he takes this opportunity to teach about marriage. And here's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 19, verse 4. He says, haven't you read, which I love when he says this because he's saying this to religious leaders. Not only have they read this, they've memorized it, but what Jesus is pointing to is in the very beginning. And Jesus is going to quote Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. He says, haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female. And said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. From the beginning of God's word, from the very beginning in Genesis, sex was created to be expressed. God says that sex was created to be expressed between a one man and one woman in the context of marriage. Now, sex was created by God. It was his idea. He was having a great day when he did that. (laughs) And God created sexual expression to happen in a certain context, in a certain relationship. That inside this box is safety and security. And outside of this box is often pain and regret. And Jesus says that God created them male and female. That you are created in the image of God. That God has created you in his image, male and female. And then Jesus goes on to describe marriage at a deeper level. He says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. That Jesus describes them is husband and wife. And then he talks about this dynamic of one flesh. That the husband and wife will come together and they'll become one flesh. Now we know that this is a complex dynamic. Because one flesh is spiritual. It's emotional. It's relational. But flesh is physical as well. That your flesh is physical. And so Jesus is describing the physical sexual relationship that God has instituted for us, that this is the relationship that God has given us for sex and for marriage. And anything outside of this box, the Bible calls sin. It doesn't matter whether it is homosexual, heterosexual, pornography, anything. Anything outside of this box, the Bible calls sin. Here's what it says in Hebrews chapter 13, beginning in verse 4. It says, marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral. 
I don't know a lot of LGBT people who are excited about this verse, but frankly, I don't think there's a lot of straight people who are real excited about this verse either. From everything that I've studied in the Bible, I cannot find a single verse in which God blesses any sexual relationship outside of the marriage relationship of a man and a woman. And none of us, no matter your sexual orientation, are off the hook on this. I'm not. You're not. This is part of God's protective love for us. When homosexuality is mentioned in the Old Testament and in the New Testament of the Bible, it's always described as a sin. Passages like Leviticus chapter 18 and Romans chapter 1. But I want you to see what the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. This is what he writes beginning in verse 9. Paul says, um, or do you know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, look carefully at that list. Do you find yourself on that list? Are there any wrongdoers in this room this morning? Any wrongdoers? Any sexually immoral people? Anybody sent inappropriate pictures to someone that you're not married to? Having sex with someone you're not married to? Anybody have a struggle with greed? Are there any slanderers? Any gossipers among us? Let me tell you, I'm on that list. I'm not going to tell you where I'm on that list. It's none of your business. (laughs) But I'm on that list. And because of that, I don't deserve to inherit the kingdom of God. And you're on that list too. Yes, the Bible teaches that homosexual behavior is a sin. But to single out homosexuality and not to address our sin of greed and gossip and lust and jealousy and pride and drunkenness is just wrong. It's just wrong. That it is a call... It's a call to to faith. It's a call to faith. But the second part of this, it's a call to, to hope. It's a call to hope. See, the hope that we have is this, is that we are all sinners saved by grace. We are all sinners in need of a Savior. Romans chapter 3 says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that sin separates us from God, and we have all sinned. And let me point out that sexual orientation is not a sin. Having a temptation is not a sin. It's the behavior. And if the truth be told, we are probably all sexual sinners in this room. So none of us can approach this as a holier-than-thou type of attitude. And I want you to know that whatever temptations you have, Jesus understands them. Here's what it says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. It says, for we do not have a high priest, talking about Jesus, we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Think about that. Think about what, what this says right here, that Jesus was tempted in every way as you are, but he did not sin. See, that means Jesus understands all of our temptations, and he's cheering us on, giving us the grace and the power to get past our past. I want to read this scripture in 1 Corinthians again. 
Because Paul writes this. He says, or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor adulterers, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, if he ended right there, that would be pretty depressing. But I want you to see this next verse. Verse 11. And that's what some of you were. That's what some of you were. But because of God's transformation in our lives, we're not there. He says this, but that is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That the implications are clear. That God is still in the business of transforming broken lives and people like Shane Phillip and like you. And doing for us what we could never do on our own. And through the power of Jesus, Paul says that he washes us. That he sets us apart. That's what sanctified means. That word sanctified just means you're being set apart. That we're justified. Justified means that God looks at us just as if I'd never sinned. That we are justified. And that, that is God's power. And not only does, does the Bible say that that's possible, but this church is full of people who have been transformed by Jesus Christ. I met with several people in preparation for this message. I met with a theology professor because I just wanted to understand the Bible at the deepest level that I could understand it on this, this issue. But I also met with a friend of mine who is gay. He came out to me years ago. And he goes to the crossing and is a friend of mine. And he came in and met with me. And he also wrote me this letter that he said that he gave me permission to share. He writes this. He says, the first time we spoke on the topic of homosexuality, it wasn't the church issue that it is today. My first revelation to anyone besides God was to you that afternoon many, many years ago. Thanks for helping me start out on my journey knowing that God loves me in spite of it. I knew back then that this, and he puts in quotes, alternative lifestyle wasn't consistent with my beliefs that I'd held on to for so long, but they would gradually become only a memory over the next 10 years. And then he begins to describe in detail his full immersion in the gay culture. And then he concludes his letter like this. He says, well, as you know, I'm still celibate going on five years now, and very happily so. My interest in a relationship or what used to be promiscuous gay sex is all but over. I've stepped out of the gay world for many good reasons. Yes, I'm still attracted to men. And if I had any significant sex drive, I, it would be same sex, I'm sure. But my journey in this struggle, if nothing else, has brought me to a much, much closer to God and what I believe is the most important purpose for being. My futile search for an answer has been replaced by a vigorous search for significance. I don't know why I'm gay. It's a very real thing, but it no longer takes my head and my heart captive. I believe that if you direct your life to things that will last and create a better world, the indulgence of a fleeting sexual urge or the complete sellout to a sexual agenda pales in significance. That I just believe that God works in all of our lives, and when we become followers of Jesus, our identity changes. You're no longer a gay Christian or a straight Christian. 
a conservative Christian, liberal Christian, or whatever modifier you want to put on it. When we became followers of Jesus, we died to ourselves and we're now hidden in Christ. And we're called to be his disciples. And our identity, it is found in Jesus. See, we're, we're part of this call to faith that we have to stand on God's word. But it's a call to hope that we are all sinners in need of a Savior. And then the last part of this, it's a call to love. As the Apostle Paul says, these three things remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. That my wife often says, it's hard to hate up close. When you get close enough with people, when you begin to serve them, when you begin to love them as Jesus would love them, it's hard to hate them any longer. When my sister was in a gay relationship for years, it changed my whole perspective because I love my sister. I love my sister. Here's what, here's what Jesus said in John chapter 13. He says, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. <clears throat> Jesus said that the trademark of a follower is not how much you know. It is not how often you go to church. It's not how many Bible studies you belong to. It's not what you stand against. The world will know that we are disciples of Jesus by the way that we love other people. Let me tell you, this right here is why I hate the phrase that a lot of Christians say, love the sinner and hate the sin. Can we just ban this from our vocabulary? Because this does not help us. Because when someone hears that you saying that to them, it just sounds condemning and condescending. It does not help. Jesus never said to love the sinner and hate the sin. Jesus said to love the sinner and hate your own sin. Let me tell you the story of my friend Caleb Kottenbach. Caleb grew up with, with gay parents. His mom and her partner would march in gay pride parades. And Caleb grew up marching in these gay pride parades with them. He saw firsthand the hatred of the Christian community towards them. He grew up hating Christians because Christians hated them. Then one day when he was in high school, he had a friend who invited them, him to a Bible study. He said he originally went to the Bible study so that he could just prove them wrong. He could prove the Bible wrong. But what began to happen was when he went there, this group of Christians just began to love him, and it changed everything. And he would eventually surrender his life to Jesus. And today, Caleb is a pastor in California. And he has written an amazing book on this topic that if you want to read more, you need to get it. It's called Messy Grace. It's different from the series we're going to start next week. It's a great book. Caleb is going to be here in May. And he's going to share his story as part of our weekend services. And he's going to talk about how we can love others without sacrificing our convictions. And you say... Well, how do I love someone who doesn't agree with me on things? Listen, I'm married to someone who doesn't agree with me on everything. <laughs> but we love and we respect each other. You see, there's a difference between acceptance and approval. I can accept you without approving of every choice that you make. I mean, there's some cowboy fans in here right now. <laughs> I can accept them without approving of the terrible choice that they make in a football team. <laughs> Acceptance does not equal approval. 
Let's be known for the way that we love all people. Otherwise, we have to put an asterisk on John 3.16, where it says, For God so loved the world, unless, of course, you are gay. If you want to know how to do this and to do it well, just, just look at our teenagers and our young adults. They do this so much better than so many of us from previous generations. They could give us a clinic on love. I love what Billy Graham says. This is so powerful. Billy Graham says, It's the Holy Spirit's job to convict, God's job to judge, and my job to love. Don't miss this. It is the Holy Spirit's job to convict. It's God's job to judge. It's our job to love. Now, in closing, I want to talk to a couple groups that are here right now. First, I want to talk to the church. The church should be the safest place on earth for anyone who wants to pursue a relationship with Jesus. The church should be the safest place. What if? Church, what if we loved each other with a love that says, I refuse to give up on you because God never gave up on me? What if, rather than beating people up with Bible verses, and let me just stop here for a minute, would you stop doing that? They know those verses, and it does not help. Would you stop beating people up with Bible verses, and but genuinely ask, tell me your story, and then listen without judging. What if? What if instead of debating our LGBT friends, we started a genuine friendship that might open the door where we can talk about our relationship with Jesus? What if? What if we allowed the Holy Spirit to do whatever work that he wants to do in their life at his pace? What if? What if our greatest desire was to build a bridge and not a wall? Finally, to anyone who is in the LGBT community. It took incredible courage for you to sit through this message, and we're almost done. You've almost made it to the end. And I just want you to know that I love and respect you so much for being here. And it would be easy to label me or the crossing as homophobic or intolerant, but that is the furthest thing from my heart. It's the furthest thing from my heart. But there's two things that I want, I want every LGBT person to hear from me. It's first, it's this, is that just as you are, you matter to God. Just as you are, you matter to God. There is a bloodstained cross where God's only son died to pay for all of our sins. And you don't get your act together and then come to God. You come to him just as you are. And here's the second thing. is just as you are. You matter to this church. You are welcome here. Even if you disagree with everything that I've said in this service. But here's what you need to know. Okay, so here's what you need to know. Is that this room is full of messy people. That this room is full of people who have had battles with pride and greed and profanity and alcoholism and bitterness and anger and pornography and sexual sin and lying and stealing. And we are learning to find freedom in Jesus Christ. And we're living out the scripture that the Apostle Paul said. And this is what some of you were. This is what some of you were. But God has transformed countless lives here at the crossing. 
So if you're okay sitting with some messy people in the same rows as you, then you're welcome here. You're welcome to be part of this community. And we believe that God loves us just as we are. But he refuses to leave us there. He wants us to become like Jesus. That's our goal. So I want to pray together. Let's just go to God and take these complex issues that we have and just submit them before God. God, we come to you, and we don't know completely what to do with all of these issues. But God, we know that we've been called to be people of faith. That we teach your word. That we are the people who are dispensers of hope. That we are all sinners in need of a Savior. And we're called to be people of love. Because that's how the world is going to know who your followers are is the way that we love them. So God, I pray that you would help us to be a church that can wrestle with all of these issues together. God, that we can speak the truth in love. But we can love. God, for anybody here, who maybe just feels damaged by the church for whatever issue that they've had. God, I pray that you'd bring healing to them through the power of Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.